0: One of the was uh, reading a book recently, and the author of the book, a very uh, well-known Christian pastor, uh, one of one of his key points in the book is, um, in fact, he he uses this sort of language in there where he says we need to we need to unhook our our New Testament Bibles from the Old Testament. Um, this, this idea that, that we as Christians, and his goal is evangelism and apologetics. He wants, he has a deep passion to reach people for Jesus. But again, in some of his words, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just give a quote here. And this kind of gives some context to just, not just what we're talking about tonight, but overall what it is that we try to do on Wednesday nights And um, his encouragement to to church leaders, pastors, Bible teachers, was uh, this question, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? And he says this is necessary because when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, and that's why he said his heart is evangelism, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. And then one last place he said, the Old Testament, or he said, uh, when people struggle to believe, the Old Testament is usually the culprit. And again, I think think his heart is for evangelism. He really wants to see more people come to Christ. But I, I just wanted to point out there's a danger to that. I mean, historically, there's been a danger to that. There, there, are, uh, there were early church fathers, who, who, which is to say people who were students. I don't know why they call them fathers. They should be called sons of the apostles, but they're called the church fathers. The, these early ones who took the baton from the, from the apostles and ran with it and were doing evangelism and discipleship and church and community and all that. And there was one particular guy named Marcion. And Marcion what much more extreme, he said the God of the Old Testament is a, is a false God, he's a different God, he's a cruel God. And but but it's it's the same effect of saying, we don't need to worry about that. That's not important for our faith. That's not important for us following Jesus. And again, if, if you've been a part of Wednesday night community, I hope that you've at least, at the very minimum, you've seen that having having a good not just understanding, but seeing how it all weaves together, it actually enhances my ability to worship Jesus because I see Jesus more clearly. I have a better picture of Jesus. I, I, I begin reading the things that he read. <laughs> so I understand when he says something, that, oh, there's nuance to it, there's layers. Do you know what I mean by that? So again, I just just kind of, for my my pastoral encouragement to you. If you hear that message, do not buy that. Do not latch on to that. That is not helpful for your faith. It is not helpful for evangelism because we, we serve and worship this Jesus who also claimed to be the one who inspired the Old Testament. <laughs> so um, we can't make these divisions. Um, And again, the reason I bring that up is it's not to harbor on one person. That's why I'm not even telling you the person's name. I'm just saying that idea out there, that idea will always resurface. It's very old. (laughs) It'll come back around again. And again, hopefully as, as you're reading scripture and as you're tracking along on these Wednesday nights, you'll see I'm trying to make connections with Old Testament, New Testament. I'm trying to see it as it's one big story. The fact that we have it in two books, you might say. It's one story. It's one author, right? It's one grand narrative, and so tonight um, I picked maybe one of the most obscure people in the Old Testament. Um, I, I was telling the band earlier. I said I'm honestly slightly regretting that I chose this because it's just so it's so detailed and it's so like in the weeds. So if if after tonight you leave and you're just confused, it's because Scripture is not clear. If it's good and you think that was good, I, I really interpreted it well. So, um, <clears throat> we may go out a dud here on our last our last Wednesday night. But um, tonight I want to talk about a guy by the name of Melchizedek. Ever heard of him before? How many of you heard the name Melchizedek? How many of you like have a reference or like, oh, yeah, I think I know something about him? Or um, he's this obscure figure, and um, it's funny you you answer three questions about him, and you've got 10 more that pop up in your head because of the obscurity, because of this guy and this role he plays. He only appears in sort of a um, narrative account one time in the Old Testament. He's referenced once in the Psalm that we'll get into, but then he's, I don't wanna say repurposed, but there's some application that's made by the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews as he's looking back to who this guy was and um, making some connections to, to Jesus. So it actually has an impact on our Christology, on our understanding of who Jesus is, and that sort of thing. So tonight, try to track with me, because at times, like, I'm confused going through this stuff. Like, I'm trying to make connections. And I'm like, this, this is, like, in, intense. <laughs> so stick with me and try to Put your, what's the old phrase, put your thinking cap on? My teacher used to always say it, and I was like, that's the stupidest phrase I've ever heard, and I'm just going to use it. Um, So, put your thinking cap on, whatever that means. And um, I want to look at, we see this this character, um, uh, first surface in Genesis chapter 14. Now, let me, let me give you a little bit of context before we jump into Genesis 14, where we see him there. Like I said, then, then we're going to go to a psalm, a few other verses that give some context to what's going on in the biblical author's mind. And then at the very end, we'll kind of land in the book of Hebrews and, and kind of see, again, how the author is thinking about all this stuff. So before we j- jump into it, though, um, about Melchizedek, just a little bit of context. Melchizedek is going to intersect this guy Abraham, and that's the only narrative we have. He has this intersection with Abraham, and, and something happens there, and, um, and that's it. But it's, it's continued to be thought about in the biblical author's mind again and again because of when it happened and what's going on. So, like I said, just a little bit of context to what's leading up to this uh, interaction. If if you remember, in the story, um, humanity's second great rebellion, Genesis 11, Babel, um, God finally judges humanity, and he he divorces them. He says, you don't want to follow me, that's fine. And so we have him actually, we read in Deuteronomy 32, we've talked about this before. He actually assigns these other sons of God to be overseers of these different nation groups, these different people. So he, he says, none of you are mine, right? And then immediately um, on, the, on the heels of that, you know, the reader, if, if you're tracking through, you go, man, well, how is God going to, is he going to get him back? Well, the very next thing that happens is God reaches into one of those nations that he disinherited, that he divorced, and he picks out one guy, right, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make my new people. I'm going to make my own people from one of those who in all intents and purposes was dead, meaning too old to reproduce, and I'm going to make my new people from that. And so God takes Abraham, and of course, Sarah, along with that, from among the nations, miraculously creates his own people. They're called Yahweh's Portion because all the rest of the people are not his portion. He's, you know, divorced them or whatever. And then immediately what we see happen is this idea of, um, and we see it reiterated several times, immediately after Genesis 12, we see God calling Abraham. Uh, we also see, turn this on. Can you see that okay? Okay. Um, we also see in Genesis, let me go to 15 here. Genesis 15, this is where um, God reiterates, he did it in Genesis 12, he just reiterates it in Genesis 15, and he tells Abraham, you're going to have, have um, seed, descendants, and that's the word that he keeps using there. Your seed will be plentiful, your seed will go on. And so that's that's this, this promise. Well, immediately before that, so here's you see it in 15, You go right up, and right before that is this interaction with this guy, Melchizedek. Okay, so somehow he's going to kind of play a role here. So let's read Genesis chapter 14, um, and then we'll go to to some of the Psalms here. Okay, so we read this. Um, After his return, this is speaking of Abraham. He's just gone out, and he had some battles, and he defeated some of the people who were against him. Return uh, from the defeat of, this is a hard word to say, Laermur, and the kings who were with him. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek. king. Now, start building a profile on who this guy is. It's giving us a little bit of information, and we're going to kind of just build this profile. Melchizedek, he's king of Salem. He brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, or the Most High God. And he blessed him, that is, uh, Melchizedek blessed uh, Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And this is, and Abram gave him a tenth a tithe uh, of everything. And the king of Sodom said, there's a bit of more of a discussion, but it's not quite as important for the what's going on here. Okay. So what do we know about this guy, Melchizedek? Number one, we know he's, he's the king of Salem and Salem, according to, I think it's Psalm 73, Salem is Jerusalem. Okay. Same, same location. There, so remember, David eventually takes control. He takes control of Jerusalem, but in this period of time, uh, it's it's controlled by uh, Canaanites, and so we know he's the king of Salem or king of Jerusalem. Um, we know his he, he's a priest of the Most High. Now, anytime you see the phrase Most High, notice how many times it's underlined here. I've I've got it underlined um, verse. Uh, 18 verse 19 verse 20 uh, verse 22 this phrase if you remember where this phrase most high comes from it's deuteronomy 32 it's in it's always used in relationship to the other sons of god the other divine beings they they are these spiritual beings but he's the most high God. So anytime you see that phrase, the most high, the author is immediately thinking of places like Deuteronomy 32. He's thinking, oh yeah, there are other, there are other authorities, these spiritual beings who have been given uh, allotments over, over people, but the most high God. It's just what Paul does when he goes and speaks to the Greek philosophers, and he says, you have many gods, but the most high God calls you back. That's, he's applying this exact same thinking here. So we see that use. Um, his name, either there's pages and pages about what the meaning. I've, I've read so many pages on the meaning of his name. There's tons of different ideas. Um, it's either something like my king is Sedeq or my king is righteous. Uh, it, it, there's a thousand different possibilities and no one seems to know. So he, his title is King of Salem. okay So these are all the things that, that are personally attached to him. Kingship. If you even kind of want to write some of these words down in a little cluster: kingship, Jerusalem, righteousness, peace, and high priesthood. Okay, did you get all those? Kingship, Jerusalem, righteousness, peace, and priesthood. So he is the chief royal, priestly representative of the high God, of Yahweh, of the true God. Of the God of gods. So, what we're doing is we're like slowly building a profile (laughs) of this guy because, again, the New Testament author and other, even extra biblical authors, are, are going to be thinking about what role does this guy play? Why is he continuing to be brought up when it's this tiny little event here? What seems to be going on? So, Melchizedek, he's only mentioned in one other place in the Old Testament that's Psalm 110. That's the other place that it is referred to. Now, what's what's questionable or interesting is why does Psalm 110 connect the dynasty of David? It's a Davidic psalm. We'll read it in a second. I'm sure you've read it before. It's a messianic. uh, It's about David's dynasty. It's that sort of psalm, but it inserts priestly connotation or context in which that's not connected with kings in Israel. So it's, it, it almost sticks out like a sore thumb in a little bit here. Um, let's take a look at Psalm 110. And I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've read the Psalm before, right? It gets quoted in the New Testament. So this is David writing, and he says, the Lord, so Yahweh, Yahweh says to my Lord. So essentially what he's saying here, He says, the Lord says to my Lord, he's saying, Yahweh says to a descendant of mine who is somehow still my Lord, my master, which someone younger than you, this is one of the troubling parts about this without realizing who Jesus is, is saying, why would David call a descendant of his, his Lord? Okay. So he, this is all being addressed to, he's saying, this is what Yahweh is saying to this one future Davidic King, who's my Lord. Very strange. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Now think of all the imagery that's used here. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And then he says this about this descendant of his. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's got Genesis 14 in his mind. That's the only time the guy even surfaced. The Lord is at your right hand, and then he in after verse four he 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 starts talking about um, eschatological, which is like future, the day of the Lord. You know when everything is set right. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. This is the day of the Lord language it means when again when he returns when he sets things right. He will execute judgment among who, the nations. Deuteronomy 32. All the different nations that are dispersed he will execute judgment among them filling them with corpses he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth he will drink by the brook drink the brook by the way therefore he will lift up his head so things we see about this future messianic king um, he, he has a scepter so he's 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 ruling Um, He's ruling in the midst of his enemies. He's sent forth from Jerusalem, from Zion. That's where his his rule is centered. He's a priest, and this is a new piece. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then it turns to this um, day of the Lord language about the conquest of those nations and those other people. Now <clears throat> it's interesting. There's actually <clears throat> even more of this sort of thing. If you go to, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pop around a little bit, but it's all gonna be talking about the same thing, and it's gonna fill in the picture for us. Okay, that's why we're jumping around to some of this stuff. Um, do you remember the story of Balaam in the book of Numbers? He's this prophet who's hired to bring a false prophecy against Israel, and every time he opens his mouth to bring a false or to bring like a a condemnation. Only words that are from Yahweh come out of his mouth, <laughs> sort of thing. <clears throat> Look at this. This is fascinating. This is this is the uh, Balaam's oracle. He is um, he, he's prophesying about the seed. Remember that back from fourteen, Genesis fourteen. The seed of Abraham is going to defeat the enemies and possess their land. Listen to what he says here. He talks about. Um, Let's see. He launches into this thing of saying he he seeks knowledge from the Most High. Does that mind? Look at verse seventeen about what he sees. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter rise out of Israel. Now, what does he mean? I see him, but not now. Who's he talking about? I behold him. <clears throat> but not near a star shall come out of jacob and a scepter that sounds a lot like psalm 110 yeah it does it's it's filling out this picture of what the future messiah will be like and i love that language i see him but not now <laughs> i see him, but still out afar so it's it's speaking of some something going on in the future <clears throat> now you might have a question as we think back to psalm 110 that this messiah, this Davidic messiah, is going to be um, in, in the line of Melchizedek, a priest forever in that order. Now, you may think to yourself, why is priest language being introduced? And who are the priests that you know about in the Old Testament? Who are the Israelite priests? They're what? What's their, what's their family? They're Levites, okay? <clears throat> it's the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. Why wouldn't it be that? priesthood. Why, why, why would he introduce a priesthood of a guy? Melchizedek is a Canaanite. He's part of the nations. That's bizarre. <laughs> why would this Canaanite priest of the Most High, of the real God, why, why is he invoking that instead of just using the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood? That was the Israelite <clears throat> priesthood. <clears throat> Let me, let me give you a, a theory that I think is very good. I think it's accurate to the text. Not everyone holds us to this, but I think this is accurate. That, And we'll, we'll jump over to Exodus <clears throat> 3 and 4. Um, I'll skip that one now for now. Um, but but I, I would propose to you that the priesthood of Aaron was at best a concession because of Moses' weakness. And that actually, the power was split. <clears throat> it always used to be in one person. Let me let me give you before I give you. Some, well, I'll just give you some examples here. Um, verse ten. So do you remember, God comes to Moses. He calls him to be the leader. He says, "I'm going to put my words in your mouth, and you're going to say them. Um, <clears throat> you're going to take you know this rod. You're going to throw. You're going to do these miraculous signs." Okay. And the kind of interaction we have is really, really interesting. Listen to some of the things that we hear. Um, Actually, let me go back to three. So Yahweh tells Moses, he says, go and speak to them. He says, they will listen to your voice. Do you see that up there? Immediately, he turns around and goes, they will not believe me and they will not listen to my voice. And then if you read chapters three, four, five, and six, it's this repeated again and again and again. It's constantly Moses's lack of belief in Yahweh. In fact, we read this. This is an interesting passage. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. You probably know this passage, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. <laughs> I love this. He says to him, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> now, this is interesting. God was patient with him the whole time. There's one place where he got angry. And it says, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said is that not Aaron? So many commentators will suggest at best, the ironic priesthood, it, at best, it's a concession for Moses's weakness. At worst, it's actually a judgment on Moses. Because see, for the first time, going all the way back to Adam, if you look at the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they they, each one of them, this patriarchal person in the family, in the clan, in the community, played both the role of authority, you could call it political, and mediator, priestly. Abraham did that. Isaac did it. Jacob did it. You go all the way back to Adam. That's even how Adam was thought about. He was, he was given the role as both the leader. He used to have, remember, he used to have dominion, right? But he's also a mediator for his people b- between him and God. <clears throat> that's always the case. And then it blows up at Moses, See, Moses was intended, I would suggest, to be both the political and priestly leader. This is why later, as things go, remember, Moses had been in God's very presence, right? The bush. When when we get to the tabernacle, can Moses go in? No, only Aaron can go in. He has forfeited that role. And so now the power is divided between leaders, and this is the case all going down. So you get to other kings, whether it be Saul, David, Solomon. Well, you also have a high priest and you have it two two different ways. I would suggest that's plan B. That was not God's original intent. The original intent was that both the political, the authority role and the mediatorial priestly role were to reside in one person who would lead God's people faithfully. So it's kind of this like, It's not a broken system, but it's a plan B system that's going forward here as we think about all of this. And so at this point, we see um, why is it then that that this Melchizedek is evoked? Why is it his priesthood that's evoked? Well, what do we know about him? Remember I said if you were to write all the different kind of terms together and kind of stack them up? What are two things that he possesses that we haven't seen in any other kings? Let's go back to it. 14. Um, He is king, here we go, king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. So these two roles that split at Moses... What, what, what God is saying by, by bringing this up, what, what David's hinting at, God's going to bring those two back together in one person. And it's not going to be the Aaronic priesthood. It's not going to be the Levitical priesthood. That was, that was a concession at best, a judgment at worst. This God's going to bring these two things into one person. And that one person is going to embody a mediating role, standing between people and between God, but he's also going to play the role. Remember, the seed has something to do with, let's go back to uh, Genesis. uh, Let's go to 12. Okay, look at the promise here. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your uh, kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you. I'm sorry. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. Now here's the key part. This has to do with his seed. And in, uh, in you, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What he's saying is somehow I'm going to bring back the nations into my presence Because presence means blessing. I'm going to bring the nations back, and it's going to rely on the seed. Somehow your seed is going to be part of that. And so when we get to David, you know, the connection there is he's saying, okay, my seed, this one that I'm calling my Lord. Again, let's go back to that one here. And again, I'm sorry we're jumping all around, but I want us to connect these dots. And there's just a lot here. Um the Lord is at your right hand. This is, this is the Psalm, Psalm 110 about David's future seed. He will execute judgment among the nations. Um, his, he's going to be over all the earth, which is to say all of the rebellious, and this is what we saw when we looked at Psalm 82, all of the rebellious sons of God, they're going to remember die like men, and God is going to reinherit. All the nations. He's going to bring all the nations back to himself. But the linchpin to that happening is the seed. And this seed has to be both high priest, mediatorial, and authoritative. King, king, priest. It has to be that. And that's what makes Jesus utterly unique. That, And this is what the New Testament author of Hebrews picks up on. This is why he leans back to Melchizedek because he's saying, Jesus finally is that linchpin. We finally have the one who is both king and priest. Let's look at, um, got a bunch here. Uh, Hebrews, here we go. And I'm gonna read a section. This is New Testament author of the book of Hebrews. His, His large argument throughout, his letter is that Jesus is fulfilling uh, priestly cultic um, every every kind of category you can think of from, from the old covenant Jesus has is in some way bringing those to completion he's bringing them to their full to their to their Telos to their end to their target in some way and so the way he argues is he says think about a um, uh, an angel in the Old Testament, this spiritual being, this divine being. And he's like, he's better. <laughs> think about sacrifices in the Old Testament. His is way better. And then he gets this place of saying, think about priests in the Old Testament. And he goes, his is so much better. His priesthood, because he's, he's that mediatorial role there. So he's pointing back to, he has Genesis 14 in his mind, and he writes this, for when God made a promise to Abraham He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope, the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become—here's the piece—here's the, piece. the piece that was missing from all Davidic kings. <laughs> having become the high priest, not an ironic one, because that one was just that—that that one was made to be obsolete at some point. But a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is has, has Psalm one ten in his mind. And then he goes on to say this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Now, who do you give a tenth to in the Old Testament? You give it to, even in later history, you give it to the priests. The priests get 10% because they don't have land allotted to them. So that's how they have their income. So he's treating him as a priest, is the point by the tenth. He is first... By translation of his name, King of Righteousness. He's, he's building a profile, too, like we did. And then he is also King of Salaam, Jerusalem. That is King of Peace. He is <clears throat> without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. <clears throat> now, one thing that invariably happens, as Christians write about this, read about that, is they think, oh, this Melchizedek, he must be some sort of like, you know, divine being. He must be a supernatural being because it says he is uh, without father, mother, or genealogy. And that's not what's going on here. No one in the Old Testament, we have Old Testament Second Temple writings on this, and people weren't thinking he's a divine being. What the author is doing is saying this, Priests in the Old Testament, their priesthood was dependent on their clan, on their genealogy. Okay, you with me on that? It's dependent on having on having a mom and a dad who is of this tribe, and then being able to recount back. You can, I can go all the way back, you know, to Levi or I've got Aaron in my family, whatever it might be. That's what it's dependent. on. What he's saying is his his priesthood, and he's a bit of an enigma. He's a Canaanite who's worshiping the true God before Israel, and we don't know anything about the guy. It, you know, he's, he's this Canaanite king, but he's saying, notice how in scripture it doesn't mention his genealogy because it didn't matter. God had chosen him to be a priest. And he's saying, so with Jesus, because see, Jesus to be a priest, what, what clan would he have to be a part of? yeah, he'd have to be a Levite. He's not a Levite. He's from Judah. So he's saying God chose him in the light of Melchizedek, meaning it's not dependent on genealogy. It's not dependent on clan. It's not dependent on any of that, but he appointed him as high priest. So just like you don't hear about Melchizedek's genealogy and parents in the Old Testament so, because it's, his priesthood isn't, isn't dependent on that. So Jesus' is priesthood is not dependent on, and I think this makes sense because even as he goes on, he's contrasting this priesthood to the normal concept of Jewish priesthood, where when he writes this, verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils, he's trying to show that Melchizedek priesthood is better than all the ones we know, Um, patriarch uh, gave a tenth of all his spoils, and those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. <clears throat> but this man who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises, the seed. Uh, where did I, Where did I drop off? seven, thank you. Um, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by a one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, so that's the normal priesthood you know, they have, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in his loins uh, of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So you kind of get the idea there. He's making it's a bit of a convoluted argument. <laughs> it makes sense in his mind. It makes sense to them. He's saying the, the, the Levitical priesthood, it was so much lesser because Abra- because this upper this gra- uh, Abraham's greater than Levi, and th- this guy was greater than Abraham based on kind of how the blessings went. Therefore it's a greater priesthood. And that's the one that Jesus has. It's not in any way dependent upon uh, his clan or his gathering or anything like that. And so I think as we think about, in fact, let me just, uh, let me read this last section here. Now, if if perfection had been attained, he writes, through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek the Psalm 110 thing rather than one named after the order of Aaron for when there is a change in the priesthood there is necessarily a change in the law as well for the one for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar meaning Jesus came from the tribe of Judah not Levi for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that, tribe Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus has such a, a, a superior priesthood that in him, this is why the language is constantly used of him, prince of peace, right? Uh, counselor, uh, the king of righteousness. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's he's the king of the universe. What the what the author is doing, he's not looking at Melchizedek and then thinking of Jesus. He's looking at Jesus and then thinking about Melchizedek. And he's saying Melchizedek was a type. He was a type of Jesus. Romans 5, Paul says Adam was a type of Jesus. What did he mean by that? Not like he's like him in every way, but he said just like in Adam Everyone fell. Everyone got screwed up because of him. We were all sort of <laughs> in him in some way. So if you're in Jesus, you're made right. All that is restored. So he says Adam was a type of Christ. And so the author here is saying Melchizedek, he was a type of Christ. He, he, he sort of foreshadowed. If you remember the difference between a, a type, um, a type we said is, is a nonverbal prediction. <laughs> a prophecy is a verbal Prediction. So there are these types in the Old Testament. They were, uh, the New Testament author refers to them as shadows. They were things that when you look at them, you couldn't, I don't know, I don't know what that's about. I don't fully get it. But in Jesus, all of that comes together in a solid form. (laughs) And you go, that's what God is doing, that's what he's about. And so they're making these connections to help us see this is how superior Jesus is. This is what he has done. This is what he has accomplished on our behalf. And so now we don't come to the type anymore. Um, is the Old Testament valuable? Oh my goodness, absolutely. Does it mean that we do everything? Well, no, we, when we did the series on the, on the feasts, you remember we talked about this idea that these, many of these things, they were fulfilled in Christ. We have the substance of which that was just the shadow but it doesn't remove the beauty. It doesn't help us to better understand the substance, right? So <clears throat> scripture, this is, I guess, just my sort of encouragement <laughs> as you go into summer here. Do Bible study. And Bible study is different than reading your Bible. Sometimes it's, it's, it's usually a lot harder work. It's slower. Just take a small section. But anytime you come across something that references something in the Old Testament, go back, <laughs> read it. See what's going on. See if you can connect dots and make sense of why are they doing that or what's, what's going on? Because this grand narrative of scripture, it's not something we're detached from. We're actually living in the story, right? I mean, we're, we're in the middle at some point in this grand narrative. We've been told things that are going to happen in the future. And there's, they're kind of gray. A lot of them are to me. I don't fully get them all. But I'm in the story and my God has invited me to be a part of it. And so as we engage in kingdom activity, whatever we do, whatever you do, you're saying, I'm gonna engage in God's good story that he's not finished with, he's not done writing. And so that's why the author, uh, New Testament author uses this language of, Jesus, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's writing. He's writing your story right now. The question is, Am I I in step with the Spirit? (laughs) Am am I going to go with that story, with all of it? Or am I just writing my own story? So we're going to jump back to one part of the story. We're going to take communion. Communion is that reminder to us of God's utter deep commitment to our story. He's absolutely committed to it. He will sacrifice anything for your story. To be his story. That's the God we serve. <laughs> and so, what, what I'll ask is during, during these next few minutes, as we do every week, go to one of the stations around the room, uh, allergen freeze in the back center, grab the elements, hold on to them, go back to your seat. And here's what I encourage you stand, sit, kneel, whatever. But would you engage in this act of worship? Sing, be participants. And then we'll take communion at the end. Would you stand with me if you're able? You know, to serve a God who would make room for us in his family, it's a pretty amazing, amazing thing. Uh, given, given our character and our, and our background and our tendency to wander and so much more than that, at least I'm speaking for myself. A God who would make room for me, that's a God I will serve and one who would give his life for us. And that's what we celebrate. His body broken for us. Let's take and eat. And our Lord who would allow his blood to be shed, making a new covenant with Yahweh our God. Let's take and drink. Heavenly Father, again, it's so good to be with my brothers and sisters tonight. Would you watch over us this summer? We won't be apart from each other. We'll still come together, just not on this day. But would you bring us back together safely? And would you do miraculous things in our lives and with our lives? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being here this whole semester and pushing in. and, and um, Hopefully you don't leave totally confused tonight. So, <laughs> love you guys. See ya. See you this weekend.